A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. After these events, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together, for they were tent makers by trade. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and take in trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, as they listened to Paul, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul by a vision at night, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, he, the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is inciting the people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of some crime or vicious, unscrupulous act, O oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about teaching and persons and your own law, see to it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from there, the judgment seat. But they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And yet Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now Paul, when he had remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Paul had his hair, first had his hair cut at Sinstria, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. 
but took leave of them and said, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open up in prayer before we get started. Father, we come to herald your word and to listen to your word. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you teach us now through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you look on your outline this morning, I don't know if Daniel was comparing notes with me or if I was comparing notes with Daniel's, but there is something suspect going on because there's a lot of similarities this morning. I don't know who's in the wrong or who's in the right at this point, but, but we'll see. So we are continuing through the book of Acts, one chapter at a time, and actually this is the first week where I decided let's, the chapter break is just inappropriate for the storyline, and so next week we'll talk about uh, Paul and his team in, in Ephesus meeting Apollos and, and whatnot, and so we don't actually get a whole chapter this week, but if you come next week, you'll get more than one chapter, so you'll get your money's worth either way. And so as we're going through the book of Acts, we're looking at particularly how is the Apostle Paul and the other apostles building church, building church cultures in the declining society around them, given that Jesus uh, gave the, one of the last commands in, in Matthew was to make disciples of all nations, that he has authority and that you are to teach others to obey him in everything and that he will be with his disciples. And in Acts 1.8, uh, when the disciples ask, when is your kingdom coming? When are you going to overthrow the Romans? His response was, uh, you will receive, wait in Jerusalem, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus answered the question about how is the culture going to change? How is your lordship coming? How is your authority going to go into the sphere of society? And Jesus answers that by saying that people are going to get filled with the Holy Spirit and they're going to be witnesses of Christ. And I am trying to make it in allusions to the Old Testament and various passages as we go through that. Isaiah being one of the major prophets, um, if you're like me and didn't grow up in a culture with uh, poetry or, or really just a f- basic knowledge of, of, of literacy, of following a storyline, the major prophets can be pretty hard for anybody to get into for the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 times you read through it because uh, it's, you're just not used to it. I really like the minor prophets because they're like one to four chapters, and it's like if you didn't get something, you can... You don't have to remember 60 chapters as you read through Isaiah. And so um, we often use the Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 verse to to just maybe as a proof text to show that when God's resounding and saying out his word, he's going to fulfill it. There's no doubt in my mind that based on the scriptures that when God's word goes forth, it will produce fruit as he intends. But 
if we read that in context at the beginning of Isaiah, the, uh, uh, the prophet is proclaiming that in the year of the Lord's favor, in, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up against all other mountains, and all the other nations, all the other mountains will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that, he may, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so a basic question you would have to ask yourself in reading the Isaiah 55 passage, how does the word go forth? How is it getting, how is the Lord sending forth the word? And Daniel talked a lot about that and very well this evening. I'm sorry, this morning. Um, He'll probably talk about it this evening if you have dinner with him. Uh, But Isaiah 2 declares that, that that's going to come out of the mountain of the house of the Lord, the, the mountain of Jerusalem. And the law is going to go forth, and the word of Jerusalem is going to go forth from there. And so God ordains these means in the earth for us to receive his grace, for us to receive his word. Um, and many times that is going to come, especially up until uh, about the 1500s, 1400s, 1500s, until the printing press came out. Uh, that's going to come through preaching. That's going to come through someone else heralding the word. Even through uh, all, if you read through the Old Testament with the eyes to see that none of the Israelites had copies of the Bible except for the uh, manuscripts and, and copies that they produced themselves that would have stayed in some of the ruling elders to read in the synagogues as they went forth. Most of the people heard the word. They had to go on the Sabbath day and listen and once a year, there was festivals where they read through the whole law, through the Pentateuch, and um, that was your chance <laughs> to hear it. That was you were, were going to pay attention, and you were going to take notes, and you were going to, because uh, you can't go home and, and Google, what was that passage? What did it say? Uh, it wasn't around. And so in this chapter, Paul's in, and we're going to look at that a little bit as just far as heralding the word in different areas of authority, and what was Paul's kind of uh, idea of being in Corinth for 18 months, what was he likely doing? And we can find that out through the other epistles and other New Testament literature. But I want to primarily focus on uh, chapter 18, verse 9, where uh, God has a vision to Paul, and, and he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will, attach, will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And so a little bit of a background to the city of Corinth. Um, you should have this in your notes that ever since 27 BC, so that's about 50 to 60 years is, is when Paul's in Corinth, um, it's been the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. And it was populated by about 200,000 people. So you're, seeing, you're thinking of a city that's more like New York City than it is like Dayton. It has that atmosphere. It's a close-knit metropolitan city. And it was largely a pagan culture. There wasn't much uh, Jewish influence. There was obviously synagogues, but it had not expanded into the, the city culture. It was about as effective as, as Christianity in New York today or, or Las Vegas. And so it was a largely pagan culture with a temple in the south of the city to Aphrodite. If you know anything about Aphrodite, it's the, the god of fertility and, and sex in the Greek and Roman culture. And so there was a, a slogan or a slang term to Corinthianize was to engage in sexual immorality at the time. And you say, hey, what do you want to do tonight? And they're like, well, I'm going to go Corinthianize. That was a, 
a way of saying I'm going to go do some lewd sexual acts. It wasn't always on the negative saying, oh, those people are Corinthianizing. It was also in the, in the positive that that's, that's where the culture was at. And so the city was really known for how lewd and sexually immoral they were. And so when we're going through and looking at what Paul is doing in these cities, we have to pay attention, right? What is, he, what is, his, is, he, what is his plan of attack, essentially? And so you can see some of those references to how lewd the, uh, the city was and how it infected the church just in 1 Corinthians 5 where they're asked to kick somebody out of the church because he is boasting about having sexual relationships with his stepmother, and he's proud of it. Um, that was commonplace in, in Corinth. And, and some of the things we don't quite get in our very Western culture that has been Christianized for a hundred years and had a strong Christian influence is that up until Christianity came around, nobody thought it was immoral to sexualize children. That was a normal practice, to buy child slaves, child sex slaves, and especially in the larger cities where there was more pagan, it was just a common practice. And until Christianity came around, that's when uh, sexual morality started coming around in, in a cultural setting. And that's why Paul is so heavy in almost every letter he talks about being sexually moral, is because the culture and the the Roman culture that was around him was so sexually immoral. Um, and you can see how he refers to that in, in the church. And so after Paul, in the last chapter, leaves Athens, he, he comes up to Corinth, uh, Corinth and he, he joins Aquila and Priscilla as tent makers. And he works with them for a while. He has to have a job at that point. And he's not getting um, money. He is receiving money from other churches, but not towards uh, his total lifestyle. He's working as he's doing that. Um, joins and strikes up some kind of business with them. And then when Silas and Paul finally make it to there, Paul was occupied with the word, it says, in 18.5. And so one of the amazing things that, in just God's providence that we see in this chapter is that Titius Justice was the first convert in Corinth. And in God's providence, he lived next to the synagogue. What better place to be, Right? It would, it would be like, hey, here's these, Paul's going to go and reason in the synagogues you know, every Sabbath day and quite often with the Jews, and that's where they would meet. And how great is it that God provided the house next door for him to, to have an acquaintance, to probably start a house church, to start meeting there, and to probably be a witness to the Jews and to the rest of the city out of that camp. And so then after that, in God's providence, even better that Crispus comes to the Lord, who was the ruler of that synagogue. He gets converted. Uh, and just a little bit in context, you can tell that he didn't stay the ruler of the synagogue because a few sentences later it says there's a different ruler of the synagogue. And, and so what better way to see God's blessing in a city where there was no Christian converts than have the, the house right next to the synagogue and the synagogue ruler come to Christ? It's a great... It was a great start. You know, there's good signs that the Lord was doing something in the city. And that's when Paul gets the vision of the Lord to, to stay here for a while. Nobody's going to hurt you. They're not going to attack you. I'm with you. Keep going on, on preaching. And so, like I mentioned last week, if you were reading through the book of Acts and were to stop when Paul gets to Corinth and then read through First and Second Corinthians, it's going to give you a little better idea 
of the community and the culture that he was building and what he was dealing with. And so Paul's way of evangelism, he doesn't say anything about miracles, signs, wonders, or, or very much of what happened. But he does in 1 Corinthians 2, when he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so this is, this is what I just would say an example of real evangelism. There's real power in the Spirit. There's real signs. People are getting converted, and, and God's pleased to convert people. And, and Paul at that point knows that uh, God has elected people in that city, and they need the gospel preached to them to come to Christ, right? And so he has confidence in staying. And so um, there's just a few aspects of the vision and what God says in vision, God's vision to Paul that you can kind of view in an A, B, A, B structure. And he says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking, uh, and, and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so don't be afraid, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. But go on speaking, and don't be silent. For I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul ends up staying there after that for 18 months. Right? It's a little, if, um, in, in the last part of the verses, it says that Paul went to Ephesus, and he traveled around, and then he eventually makes his way back to Ephesus a second time, and we'll see that next week. But he, he's got confidence from the Lord to stay there and preach the gospel for 18 months. And so one of the things that we should be looking at is what was he doing? Was he just evangelizing all the time? Was he, um, you know, what kind of culture was he building? And so what I believe the scriptures point to is that our primary ministry we have towards, towards others towards others in the church and others outside the church is to boldly speak the word. Our primary ministry, I would say our, our first ministry is to God, to worship him, to love him, to obey him, and then to, to boldly speak the word. And that's, that's to our neighbors, right? When Jesus says that you should love God and love your neighbors, that's, um, we often take that in the mindset of our of the how the Pharisees took it of they're asking like well who's your neighbor, and well the neighbor is the person you can touch, right next to you, right your your closest uh, relationships, the closest people, right and so that's often your family and then then your church, uh, you got coworkers in there and, and various other relationships that are more uh, more often, right so when Paul's staying up there staying in Corinth for eighteen months. Uh, the first thing he's going to do is preach the word. There's converts, and so he is regularly evangelizing. We see that in every church he goes to, that he's, there's no converts here. I'm going to preach. There's going to be converts. And so there, Paul has a special ministry to uh, be very forward in evangelism. What you don't get in the book of Acts is what you see in the epistles is him building church culture and godly lifestyles. Right, And we get a little bit of a model of a pattern of how he evangelizes, but he doesn't lay out like a five-step plan to evangelize. Uh, that would be real nice for us, but, but we don't get that. And so, so the, uh, 
what we get in the epistles is how God is, or I'm sorry, how Paul and the other apostles are admonishing the church in godly living, how they're building uh, culture, how they're relating to one another, how they relate to the outside world, and, uh, and doctrine, and various things. And what we get in the book of Acts is largely his setting up churches, evangelism, and, and what's going on there. And so we, I think every Christian has a responsibility from the word that we're commanded to preach the word, to make disciples, right? To teach one another in some, some, uh, in some realm. And so I want to go over how that applies to the individual, the family, and then pastors and church culture and what we're building here. And because if you were to look in the epistles, almost everything it starts with the doctrinal statements for a few chapters, and then it goes to godly living, practical life. And that's either how Paul organizes it in the epistles is either how is this church operating, like in the book of Corinthians, don't come to church drunk. If you're going to come and eat a meal, don't, uh, don't reject the poor. Right? You have something to eat at home, don't come and hog all the pancakes this afternoon. You... <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. Uh, make sure that you're sharing amongst yourselves. And there's a lot of admonition, encouragement, and rebuke about church culture and, and how you're supposed to operate um, in that. But if you look at like the book of, book of Ephesians, it's three chapters of doctrine and then, then family life, household living for, for husbands, for wives, for children, for slaves, for masters. And, and he doesn't go outside of that. He doesn't, because um, that's the household. And so primarily, I think what Paul's doing in building these, these cultures that are in, like, Corinth, a just, a just pagan, uh, demonic, immoral society, he's focusing on how do you relate to your neighbors in your household and how do you relate to your neighbors in your church? And that's the type of culture that's going to be built that as the city falls, as the Roman colonies fall, the church will be there to pick up the rubble and, and continue. Because Christ had promised that not even the gates of Hades are going to come against the church, and the church will prevail. And so one thing you'll notice is if you're, if you're getting this sense from the Holy Spirit and the Lord that you're getting, um, you need to take that more seriously. You need to take preaching the word more seriously. You need to uh, do that in your family and in this church culture more seriously. One of the first things you're going to get is opposition, as Paul did, as Jesus did, as Adam did. And so Genesis 3, when, when the serpent says, did God really say... The first thing you get is opposition to the word. You get that with Christ in the, um, in the wilderness of Matthew 4. After the heavens had opened up, Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit depends, descends upon him and says, this is my beloved son. And what's Satan's first temptation? If you are the son of God, right? He's trying to get you to question, right? And so that's what I think um, or what I'm trying to be built in in subsequent or, or previous uh, going through chapters of Acts is that you're going to get opposition. You're going to get, as if you want to preach the word boldly, if you want to, I'm not even talking about going out and evangelizing. If you want to do it in your family, if you want to evangelize to coworkers, if you want to uh, 
you're going to get some kind of opposition, and you have to be ready for that. Even if you want to do that to yourself, if you want to start godly disciplines of reading the Bible daily, you're going to find opposition. You're going to, a lot of it's going to come from you. <laughs> Most of it's going to come from you. And so I want to look at how I believe Paul was focusing on not just individual conversions and individual growth in preaching the word to individuals, that they should be preaching to themselves, that they uh, would then take that to their families and as households, build a culture of preaching the word to each other, and how Paul, as a pastor and raising up pastors, built church culture for teaching doctrine and godly living to create a culture and a lifestyle of that. And you can look at that as the, you can't get to a healthy family without healthy individuals. You can't get to a healthy church without healthy families. You can't have healthy families without healthy individuals. So it, you really start, as uh, Daniel showed us this morning, the individual is the base. And, and you can see that in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he's saying, I, I really think, I'm really thankful that I, I baptized uh, Crispus and Gaius, but I didn't baptize any other of you. Uh, but he names people individually, you know, and, and even through the book of Acts of who are coming to Christ. He's not just saying there was a group of converts. For the most part, he's naming people. And so as we get into this, I want to keep that kind of at our, our the forefront of our minds is Christ's command in, in Acts 1-8 and in Matthew 28 to make disciples first applies to you and your household and then broadly to the church and then we go outside to the culture. And if anybody's fed up with the decline of our culture, the first thing you should do is, is uh, build that culture yourself. Build the culture that you want to see outside. If you're upset about our culture moving farther away from Christ, then you need to move farther towards Christ and build a culture in yourself, in your household, and in the church. And so I want to work our way up from the individual to the church um, and, and look at our need to build cultures around preaching the word to one another, taking on the word, and, and being bold in that, not just lackadaisical. And so um, you should have the large part on your outline should be about the individual, the family, and pastors and church culture. And so 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training, so that the man of God may be ready, equipped for every good work. Now, not to take anything too out of context, but the man of God here refers to a pastor, but he is also referring to that the pastor has to be equipped to bring the word to every individual so that they would be ready. And so what God's calling you to do is good works. He's saved you so that you would do good works, that he says in Ephesians, that he's prepared those for you. And so you look to those good works in the natural areas of your neighbors who are the closest uh, relational. And so, but the point is, if you don't build that culture in yourself of holding fast to the word, to reading it, to hearing it, then you won't be ready and you won't be equipped. And so when we get to the family, I'm going to talk largely about the head of household or, or the man uh, and what his responsibility is, but you can't do that well if you're not doing it. You can't, you can't be, you can't take the responsibility of your family well in taking charge of the word if you don't do it well for yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
that you can't uh, teach your wife or your children well according to the word if, if you're not receiving it. And so that's primary. That's the first step is to get in the word daily. Uh, get, in, get on your knees. Uh, confess your sin. Seek the Lord, right? You need to be able to teach and admonish others before you can teach and admonish others, right? You need to be able to do that yourself before you move to others. And so uh, Ephesians 4 talks about people who are not mature in Christ, who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so he's saying that there are, there's various teachings coming in and out of the church at that time which are largely heretical, and it's causing people to sway back and forth. That as various teachings comes in, they, they follow that teaching, and it takes them over here, and then something else comes in, and it follows them over here, and there's no foundation. There's not a foundation of the word, of faith in Christ, to solidify them, to keep them from moving. They're just like a ship in the sea. And so there is supposed to be a process of every individual maturing in Christ. And I believe everybody can, and, and Paul says that in, in Corinthians. And so if you don't do this one well, or how well you do this one is how well you can do the family or the next sphere in the church. And so um, when we get to the family, Ephesians 5.26 says, cleanse her, talking about the husbands, cleanse her by the washing of the water and the word. Very simply, husbands are called to preach the gospel and wash their wives in the word. There's really no debate about that one, right? You are supposed to. And so you're, what Paul's doing in, when he's writing to Ephesus, to the Ephesian church, is he's saying this is how we're building culture. He doesn't go first uh, to, to orderliness or anything in the church. He's talking about the household, how households are supposed to operate. And just later in the next chapter, uh, Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? It's very easy to bring them up in discipline as a father. It's, it's a little harder to not provoke them to anger. And then instruction is a whole separate ballgame. And so we all go through... Um, uh, we all have steps in, in, with a lot of kids coming into the church and, uh, you know, here soon. And uh, we'll be raising a lot of kids as a community. And, and we'll have a lot more uh, kids running around. It'll be a lot louder. And there'll be a lot more vacuuming needed and various things. But what Paul's focusing on is the culture you're build, building here. It's first the father's responsibility or the head of household to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you're supposed to do it in a way that isn't going to provoke them to anger. I could, I could really hold my thumb down on my kids and make them obey but, and, they, and, and do it begrudgingly, right? That's easy. It's, it's a much harder relational thing to do that to where they are, find joy in the discipline. And so, and I think it's easy as a father, as you're building culture in your family, to we focus on the discipline. Discipline is very, uh, it's the first word, I'm bringing them up in the discipline. But instruction is way harder, I think. 
And so instruction looks like you have to teach your children how to sit in the pews and how to worship God, and you've got to teach them how to pray, and you've got to teach them about tithing, and you've got to teach them the Ten Commandments and, and, and what that means. And uh, we've been having a really fruitful time in our family worship. I think we've been having a really fruitful time going through the book of Deuteronomy. And we're looking at how Israel was, was called to operate as a people and how they were supposed to look different and why did God create these cleanliness laws on, on what you can and cannot eat. And we just recently went through um, uh, a couple chapters of Deuteronomy where it talks about how you can't, you can't eat the meat with the blood in it. Don't be drinking blood. Uh, if that's news to you, just write that one down. Keep it in your notebooks. Uh, don't drink blood. Because other, other cultures at that time were, or, or boiling meat and blood and various things. But you're supposed to pour it out on the ground. And uh, I don't think we did any particular teaching, but Lily brings up when we had talked about uh, that you can't drink the blood. And she's like, because the life is in the blood. I'm like, yeah, we read that like two chapters ago. Uh, you can't do that. And why not? And, and it, it spurs, you know, Lily's at the age where it spurs discussion on why can't you do that? Why does God want you to do that? Why does, uh, what is this instruction about? And so bringing children up in the instruction of the Lord is much more tedious, uh, takes way more time, and is a lot harder. I think every kid, when they're three, four, five, goes through a period of where they just... You see them, they're moving their arms, they can't stand still. It's, it's, uh, they just do whatever they feel. And a lot of times that's in their limbs, it's all over the place. And they just do this, I don't know why. But, but uh, not to put a directive in this is how it has to be, or, but in a method of fathers, parents have to teach their children how to stand still in worship how to worship and sing songs. They have to sit with them and say, this is, do you understand the words? Do you know what we're singing? Are you paying attention? And they have to do it in a way that doesn't provoke them to anger. Right? That's way, that builds a whole different culture in your household than um, maybe like what I grew up in was throw them to youth group and let them do whatever they want for an hour. Hope they, hope they turn out all right. Right? And, and, uh, and Paul makes allotment for, for families that either don't have a Christian husband or don't have a husband or a man in the house or widows where there are supplemental graces for that that you, we can reach out for. But the, the mandates to bring up children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord are still there. And so in households, I think the Bible is just particularly harder on men, which is... Maybe not what you'd hear in the broader culture, but uh, they're the ones that are called to imitate Christ, where the wives are called to imitate the church, and the men are supposed to be washing their wives in the word. The men are supposed to are in charge of instruction and discipline. Not to say that wives can't do that also. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're totally separate, but the the responsibility falls on men, and our men have to build a culture in their household of teaching their wives. If, you're in a, if you don't have a wife yet, or if you're in a single brother's or a sister's household, God is always relational. And, he's, and how you relate in your household now is how you're going to relate in your marriage later. 
And so single brothers, or well, we only have single brother households right now, should have a head of household that is directing and teaching and organizing uh, some kind of community, right? Because the culture you're building there is the culture you'll build in a house later, whether you can get along with people or not, right? Paul is very concerned about these close relationships. Who's your brother? Who can, who's your closest relationship? And how is it ordained by God that you would be in right relationship with each other? And so after the individual, he's, he gives family directions. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 14.35 uh, says, if there is anything that they, talking about the wives, desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. And so again, we tend to have a culture uh, that skips steps, right? I just want to get, and we tend to uh, skip steps of authority, skip steps of, um, and just find out what's quicker. And so if you got a question uh, about something doctrinally, wives are called to first ask their husbands, which is a grace and a culture-building thing, which if they don't know, they get an opportunity to learn. And so you should go to the, your husband first and ask him, right? And so God puts these authority structures in and these, as means of grace, as means of grace for both the, the husband and the wife and for the children, right? Men have to learn how to be shepherds at their home. So outside of like maybe one or two passages that could apply to pastors or, uh, or uh, households, there's nothing didactically that says that a husband or a man is like a shepherd of their home. But all of the qualifications, all of the same um, mandates and responsibilities are given to men over their, uh, men over their households as, um, as a pastor is over a church or an elder is over a church. And so I think God takes that way more seriously than we normally think about it. And so men have to learn how to lead their homes, how to lead their children. Head of households have to learn how to do that in, in their allotment. I think the way we do single households is very beneficial towards building that culture of mutual submission, leadership, relating to authority, and how do you live in relationship with one another. Because if, if you're in a single household and you're just going your separate ways and nine uh, times out of ten you're just in your room separately with other single guys in their single room separately, then guess what? If you get married, you can't do that. It's not, it's not usually advised that you have separate rooms uh, <laughs> and, and be separated, right? And so it doesn't work out in, in the next phase of life or if God calls you to marriage. And so how you live in relationship with those closest to you is, is a huge indication of where you're at in the Lord and whether you, you take his directive seriously or not. And how, we, how families build culture, if families build those cultures or households build those cultures, then our church will have a general culture of that. And so as Paul's traveling from church to church, he's, sometimes he's just staying there for you know, a few weeks, it seems, and sometimes it's, it's a year and a half, two years, and you kind of start wondering, like, what is he doing besides evangelizing? And I believe he's building culture by teaching, by teaching doctrine and godly living. 
And so even in 1 Corinthians 4, um, you can write it down, 15 through 17, Paul sending Timothy to the church at Corinth so that they would learn his ways and, and how to be orderly in, in the worship service and in the church. And Paul had a very, very um, specific task as, as the apostle where he couldn't, he would, Paul would be a bad husband, a bad father if he had a wife and children and he was doing this type of traveling um, and, and nearly getting killed every other week. Uh, he couldn't do that responsibility except for as a, a single man. And so he had a, a very special calling, to, but that didn't limit him in teaching about marriage, teaching about ch- how to ch- you know, raise children. It didn't limit him in that in one bit. And so, because uh, the word of God teaches on it. And so I think what Paul was doing was putting, he needs to put new wine into new wineskins. And so as he's going out, and if you think about it, if he's going out and evangelizing to a pagan culture in Corinth where it's so sexually immoral, and they come into the church, and everybody's sexually immoral in the church, and you go out and evangelize to bring in more sexually immoral people in the church. I don't think that was his, his MO. I think he was preaching uh, and building culture in the church for godliness, and as the Lord would bless him the, the, and bless the church, more people would come in because there's been a wineskin of a new community, a new way of life. People have changed. People have rejected their pagan culture. People have rejected their immoral culture. And there, are be, there are being, um, as, as Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, a city on a hill. They're being a light to the surrounding culture based on the culture that they're building. And so I think Paul's, besides evangelizing, his, his primary focus in the church was teaching doctrine and godly living. And so 1 Timothy 4.13, uh, Paul's telling Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. All right, that's what he commands Timothy to do as an elder of the church of Ephesus inside the church, right? Uh, read scripture publicly, exhort the people, and teach them. And so doctrine always comes before godly living. It's really great as, as a teacher or a pastor if you can teach doctrine and, and teach people things and then uh, on maybe the attributes of God or, or just the way God is, and then God kind of sorts that out and, and they live more godly. That's always a lot better because you don't have to rebuke as much. And that's really nice sometimes, right? If, but the, if all the epistles, all the letters, the doctrine comes first, you see about God's sovereignty and his grace and his magnificence and his calling and all these wonderful attributes of who God is and, and what he's doing, and then Paul moves to godly living. And that's what, we're, that's what we do every Sunday. That's what we should be doing, uh, exhorting people by the grace of God um, to live godly lives. If, if you noticed a few times, as we do the benediction, before that there's a charge, which essentially says, you've heard the word of God, now go and do it. And the benediction is, take this grace of God and, and go, right? Be dismissed, right, by the grace of God. And so there's usually a, a charge, even in liturgy, of you've heard the word, now go and do it. This is the way God is, now go and act accordingly. And, and then... For uh, most of history, we don't all meet together until, you know, 
one, one week later. We meet in individuals' houses and we have various relationships and, and mostly you live in your household and see your brothers and sisters in Christ who live with you, right? And you have various responsibilities there. That's where the majority of uh, preaching and, and community life is. Then you should, if you live alone, you should get in community. You should be around brothers and sisters as much as possible, right? That's why if you, uh, and it's situational, if, you, if you're single, I really do think if your situation allows it, live in community with other brothers or other sisters of the, of the same sex. Don't, single brothers aren't trying to live with single sisters. That's, that's bad news. <laughs> it's always bad news, right? And so what Paul's and Paul is, is an is a apostle who's building a culture because he's not going to be there the whole time. He's going to leave it to others. They're, whatever he builds, he might send a, a worker with him to help him. And then he's going on um, to plant a new church to get a new wineskin to build a new culture. And so, again, in 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? That's what we're supposed to do in, uh, well, that's what pastors are doing. That's what we're doing up here from the pulpit to create a culture of, of right doctrine, of godly living, exhorting you how to live your life, how to live in community with one another. And I believe that based on Paul's epistles, that he was doing a lot of what we would call family counseling, right? That if he's writing letters to the Ephesian church on how to operate in your family, the maybe hard cases that come at him are usually within those same relationships. How do we deal with this? And again, in Ephesians 4.25, speaking of the broader church culture, having therefore put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with, you, with his neighbor, for we remembers one of another. And so Paul's calling the broader church culture to speak the truth. Where do we find the truth? Well, Jesus said in John 17, 17, that sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Or 831, John 831 and 32, that uh, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth. And the truth is in the word, and it's going to set you free. And so we're supposed to have a culture of speaking truth to one another, of encouraging one another according to the scriptures. That's what we're called to do. That's the culture we're, we're trying to build. But if you're not doing it at home, you're not going to do it here. If you're not doing it in your study, if you're not doing it, if you're not receiving the word, you're not doing it in your home. And you're not going to do it here. And we're going to have no effect on the broader culture. And so that's what our, our ministry is, um, is is to take the word and, and preach it boldly to one another in our families um, as God has allowed us and, and to ourselves. And so the aspect of the vision that God gives to Paul where he says, do not be afraid, is what holds us back a lot is just a fear. If you've gotten into your marriage and it's been two, three, four years and you haven't built a culture of disciplines together, of spiritual disciplines, of, of praying of leading, of receiving, then it's very hard to break that cycle. And there's a fear of, well, it's not going to go right or it's not going to, uh, it's going to be weird. And yeah, it probably will be weird. 
Don't be afraid, <laughs> right? No one's going to hurt you, I don't think. If you have a brother or, or a spouse that's going to hurt you, then, then, then there's another problem. But, um, but that's what we're called to do, is to build that culture. And he's focusing on households, he's focusing on individuals, and then the broader church culture. And so... Uh, the key to overcoming fear and stepping forward isn't to just say that it's not real, it doesn't exist, and try to press forward. The key is counting the cost and looking to what God has called you to in, in your station of life and in, in the relationships you have and count the cost. Is it worth following Christ? Is the reward at the end better than, uh, than what we have now? Is there, it isn't to say that fear doesn't exist, right? Even First Peter uh, 3, he tells uh, people that, that if you fear anything that is, if you do, you do good, if you do not fear anything that is frightening. There are really frightening things out there. Paul, in preaching in, in Corinth, had really frightening things. He's been persecuted a lot. Those are real fears, but that you don't fear the things that are really frightening. You do good. And so to overcoming that isn't to be disillusioned, it's to see God's promises, see what he's called you to, where you're at, and to move forward. And so as, um, as we're building culture here, it is primarily what we're trying to do is help and enable and empower families to preach the word in their own homes, to take it, take it home. I even tell people sometimes, there's a Bible in the pew, take it home. Try reading it. Uh, try reading it with your wife. Try reading it with your kids. I'm not a big um, proponent for, um, for particulars, but in methods. As in, I could tell you what I do. I could tell you what's been effective, but that might not work for you. You have to figure that out. And as men, you're called to lead your wife. You're called to lead your children. You're called to have your, your own spiritual disciplines at home. And so you have to figure it out. And so as we come to the table today, um, we want to look at, at John 1, 1, and 14, where uh, the gospel is saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And that as the living Word of God, he became incarnate. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. He came here, subjected himself down to earth, and dwelt among us, that it was very relational. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday as we take communion, as we take the Lord's Supper, that we get to dine with Christ. We get to dine on Christ. We have uh, the word, the flesh, given to us. And so come, let's dine with Christ.